There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our regular listeners and viewers know that Next Steps Forward is all about personal empowerment, commitment to our own well-being, and the motivation to achieve more than we ever thought possible. Today's guest is going to cover all three of those topics in the next 52 minutes. I'm in Mukherjee Househam. Welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure. Thank you for your time today. Iman's professional career is a story of a fascinating journey. She went to a successful career on Wall Street to the world of science, where today she's a clinical social worker, neuroimmunology researcher, mindfulness practitioner, and computer scientist. Iman is dedicated to reducing and preventing burnout and attrition at hospitals by teaching frontline workers mindfulness through microhabits via her offering called Jibika. She also is the author of several book chapters and peer review papers on the neuroimmunology and epigenetics of mindfulness interventions. I mean, I just have one word for your accomplishments, and that's wow. What a career you've had, and obviously it's far from over. Where did your life story all start? You know, where were you born and raised? Where did you go to school? And what did you aspire to be growing up? It's a great question. Um, very reflective. I was born and mostly raised in India. And I went to school uh, mainly in the U.S., I came here to study computer science. And what got me to start meditating was actually a very personal traumatic incident that happened back in 2001. I was in a very bad personal relationship and um, a physically abusive one. And I literally ran away from it uh, to save my life. I must say I'm happily married now with two beautiful kids, so that's over. But back then, to cope with the the trauma of this incident, I started meditating. Your path eventually took you to Wall Street, where you worked for two renowned firms, Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan. What drew you to Wall Street, and what did you do there? Wall Street, um, so initially, I found a job uh, rather cluelessly. It was it was very exciting because Bear Stearns was an amazing company and I knew quickly through the um, culture of it by just interviewing um, that I wanted to be there. It was really the people, believe it or not. And um, what was the second question? Let me pull back to it. And what drew you to Wall Street? You talked about the culture there and then what was your role at Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan? So I reported to the chief operating officer of Bear Stearns Asset Management uh, Division. And I was actually the youngest managing director of the firm. Um, I just loved it. Everything about it, the culture. And also, I have to say, the mathematical aspect of how the funds work really interested the nerdy side of me. (laughs) Wall Street, like everything and everybody, has had ups and downs over its lifetime. What was it like when you were there? Was it up, down, both? Well, um, Bear Stearns sadly went down historically too in 2008, 
I was a part of it. It felt like the Titanic. Uh, besides that uh, dramatic, rather dramatic event, I would say it was mostly up. And perhaps that was my perception. Um, and mind you, it coincided with exactly the time when I was meditating, or at least started the meditation practice. Not sure if that's what kept me grounded, but I like to believe that was. You know, something we didn't talk about before, you know, I've also been in the financial services firm and was there during the financial crisis. But what was it like, you know, as Bear Stearns, you know, the world was closing up shop? Yeah. You know, what was it like for you, for your coworkers? You know, how did you mentally deal with it? Yeah. I have a lot of friends still from Bear Stearns. Actually, one of my best friends is from there. And, um, you know, we kind of stuck through it together. We heard about the whole thing uh, unfolding the evening uh, in 2008. I still remember clearly when we were texting each other to hear you know, just exchanging what was happening. Is it going to file for bankruptcy or would we be saved? And thankfully, it was a little better than how uh, it could have gone. But mentally speaking, it was sad. It was sad. It was grief uh, was, I would say, the primary emotion. Uh, but that said, every experience has a meaning and reason in life. Always looking for the silver lining. <laughs> yes. So it's one thing to be drawn to a profession and quite another to want to stay in it. Mm. What was it about the Wall Street environment that enabled you to thrive like you did? You know, my friends and uh, the initially Bear Stearns was more like a very entrepreneurial environment. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and obviously, you know, always helps to have a great boss. So I got lucky there. Um, eventually, when I was rehired by J.P. Morgan Chase Asset Management, actually private banking, um, same thing, similar, but obviously a larger mammoth organization. And there was a charm to that, old school charm, and really enjoyed that. Um, what kept me going was the learning. I learned a lot. You thrived in the pressure cooker of Wall Street, yet it was there that you started meditating. Why? The, you know, the personal traumatic incident that I mentioned was really what pushed me uh, to kind of deal with the trauma. I had to figure out a way. And I'm not the one to, um, I tried therapist, the therapist route, and that usually works for most people, but it didn't work for me. I am more of a self-help kind of person. So I needed to find some uh, tools and that's mindfulness. And for me, it was meditation and still is. And how did you learn about meditation? Was there someone introduced you to it or just Googling? It's actually a friend of mine from work on Wall Street that took me to a meditation center in New York City, uh, which actually is no longer there during pandemic, they closed down called Shambhala Meditation Center. And uh, just sat there for 40 minutes. The first time I must admit, wasn't what you think would have been. It wasn't enlightening. I was twiddling my thumbs, getting restless for 40 minutes, watch, looking at my watch. It, it was painful to sit still. Various people try a number of coping mechanisms 
ranging from the constructive five general types of coping strategies, which are problem-focused coping, emotion-focused coping, social support, religious coping, and meaning-making. Destructive behaviors, such as overeating, lashing out at others, self-medicating, and substance abuse. Were you trying any other coping strategies before meditation? I think inherently, that's a great question because um, that makes me reflect back. I never thought about it. So I would say meaning making, like I said, everything to me, uh, I I don't know, maybe it's my dad who taught me this, uh, but somehow I learned that every incident, every event has a reason for it. It's here to teach us something. And that... uh, was a survival tool I somehow inherently had. And I still do. I still do. And so what is mindfulness? What does it do for us? And how do we achieve it? Mindfulness actually is obviously open to interpretation. If you ask people for a word association, oftentimes what comes up with my clients is presence, self-awareness, grounded, peaceful, But um, just a very cut and dry practical definition that I like to use is, you know, mindfulness is about really being present with our internal processes, whatever we're doing, either be it you and me talking, it could be meditating, whatever it is, and just listening to your voice, listening to perhaps my voice listening to the space in between. While we do that, we also are self-aware with our physical sensations. What do I mean by that? Am I tense anywhere? Are my jaws clenching? Are my shoulders up? These are little cues that our body gives uh, to us when stress is coming up. So basically mindfulness in a nutshell is those self-awareness pieces. We're aware of our internal processes. How does it help with stress response? Because ultimately that's the goal. We're trying to manage stress. Well, when we practice and practice this about being present constantly and noticing our bodily processes, what happens is we quickly train ourselves to notice these stress responses, jaws clenching, shoulders up, maybe our voice shaking. And we invoke some of the tools that we learn, like deep belly breathing. And basically, that's what helps us manage the stress. How do we get it? Many paths to becoming mindful. Meditation is simply one of them. You may not have time or interest to meditate. I've met most people I meet don't want to meditate. And to them, I say micro habits. You can actually become mindful by training yourself to practice these 30 second habits every day. It sounds so simple. It's 30 seconds. And, you know, as you're talking about, you know, gritting your teeth, your cheeks getting tense, your shoulders up in the air, like we all do it all the time. And it's certainly post, you know, through the the crisis, COVID crisis now on the other side of it, it sounds so simple. It's just 30 seconds. We should, we need to find that time. Yes. So how does, sorry. sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. I learned this. I was talking to someone who makes TMJ uh, dentures, uh, the tight jaw dentures, Mm -hmm. because we grind. And he said his sales increased during the COVID crisis because people are clenching their jaws in sleep. I think I was one of his clients. (laughs) 
<laughs> Seriously. So how does meditation ground us? You know, what goes on in the brain and its functions to make that happen? Hmm. So, you know, funny you mentioned that because I always thought um, when I was seeing personally experiencing the changes through meditation, my own meditation and mindfulness practice, I always thought it's a brain-based function. It's a brain-based process. And the truth is, it is at first. The brain is what works first, but it's beyond, further beyond, faster than the brain. But we'll get to that later. So how does the brain work when we meditate? So just take meditation, but all mindfulness practices do this. Like I said, mindfulness is about being self-aware. So think about it right now. So right now, you're listening to my voice. You're listening to every space between two words, the silence. You're also noticing your physical sensation. While you're doing that, guaranteed your mind would have a pop of thought. And the truth is, it may not be one thought. It may be many thoughts, like a popcorn machine. Now, that's what the brain does. When we're trying to focus or pay attention to the present moment, brain thinks that's what it's supposed to do. In a mindfulness practice, any mindfulness practice, the, the thing is to notice and pay attention when the thought is about to pop or is, is coming up. Why? Because the truth is the brain pays attention. When you pay attention to a thought, unconsciously sometimes when we're not mindful, what the brain does is it pays attention to the thought, it jogs memories from the past and compares the thought to saying, okay, this happened in the past. Is there danger involved in it? What did I do then to avert that danger? And then it invokes that action. What we do in mindfulness practices, we pay attention to the thought and instead of taking action, we return, we tell our mind to come back to the breath, for example. When you do that repeatedly, every time the thought comes, what happens is you're training the brain, like you train the muscle at the gym, to become grounded and present. And that's simply it. You're training the brain. And you actually see a lot of changes that happen in the brain, structural changes, such as the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain that's often affected in Alzheimer's. It shrinks. If you look at the post-mortem reports of Alzheimer's patients versus controls, healthy controls, it shrinks. Well, we found in one of my papers, we talk about this, the hippocampus grows in volume for long-time meditators. Why? Because remember the jogging of memories? We're practicing that every time we meditate, for example, or become mindful. Now, memories are actually, contextual memories are stored or retrieved by the hippocampus. It plays a big role in that. So when we're doing this jogging of memories and coming back to present, we're basically strengthening the hippocampus. Same with the attention network. When we're focusing, we're strengthening the brain's attention network. Lots of changes in the brain. Good ones. All good ones. Yes. So you walked us through that. How long does it take to become well-practiced at mindfulness? How long? So 
So that's a great question. It depends on the person. But if you're doing, if you look at the signs of habits, it takes about, there was a study done in UK, in the UK a few years ago, that shows that for any new habit to be formed, if you practice it daily, it takes two weeks to two months, a median of two months, depending on the person, depending on the habit. So in my experience, I've seen about, you know, do it for a month if you're meditating. If you're practicing micro habits, you'll soon realize a couple of weeks, three weeks, you're going to start forming a habit like a Pavlovian response of calming down. And how many times per day should we be mindful mm. with the mindfulness process? Ideally, we're planning to incorporate this habit to live in a mindful state, but that doesn't, in real, realistically, that doesn't happen. Even after 20 plus years of practice, I would say it takes constant effort. If you're doing the actual mechanical practice, do it for whatever time you have, maybe once a day, whatever time works for you during the day. Typically I've seen it's early or morning when you wake up, right after you wake up, do some mindfulness practice, even for 30 seconds. It could be lunchtime for some people. For some people, it could be nighttime. If you could do it more than once, I would say twice is great. And if you don't have time to meditate, if you have five minutes, that's great. If you don't have time to meditate, practice the micro habits twice or three times a day. You mentioned different times of day and settings. Are there certain types of people or other factors for which mindfulness is best suited? Um if we're predisposed to mindfulness practice, that's a great question. In my experience, I've seen, I mean, of course it helps to have an openness to trying it out. That's always a plus. Um, also, it's seen that people who have an inherent resilience in twin studies, identical twin studies, you see one is resilient inherently and the other isn't. Although they grew up in the same environment, genetically the same helps. But the truth is, um, of all my clients, I have seen 95 or plus percent just doing it. And they're all kinds of people. We're talking thousands of people. And so there are different personalities. Doesn't matter. As long as you can stick through it. What helps is knowing, the having an intrinsic motivation, knowing that this is good for you. It keeps you coming back. What health benefits did you notice you were gaining through meditation and mindfulness? It's a great question. So when I first started back in 2001, a few months later, I noticed that I wasn't not only happier, which is what you expect. I was getting uh, better with fighting off common cold, for example. So, you know, I never got tested in terms of before and after studies. I couldn't tell you for sure but I thought that my immune system improved. Doesn't mean that I don't get sick. It simply means that I fight it off maybe a little bit better than I used to before. Meditation helps you with your health, as you mentioned. Did you feel that it helped you professionally as well? Absolutely, absolutely. It helps us be more productive. Um, why? Because we're paying more attention to whatever we're doing. We're more, more in a flow state than we used to if we practice mindfulness. 
simply be, have you seen artists when they're painting, for example, they're in a flow state. An actor is in a flow state. And that's what we cultivate. We practice. It's a learned, it could be a learned habit and definitely helps to be more productive. In fact, I have groups of surgeons who are very much like athletes that come to me to simply, not for burnout, they know how to handle stress. They want to be more productive. And that's what I teach them. You started to teach others on Wall Street about meditation and mindfulness. How were you in those lessons received by your colleagues? Well, you know, I started those who came to me. So going back to that predisposition helps. So those who would come to me and saying, you know, I mean, can you teach me a few tricks? I would just teach them. I wouldn't volunteer for it unless someone really wants it. And it was very well received. And, you know, there is Wall Street is so close to me. And that's where still most of my friends are, or at least 50% of them are. I think we could use some mindfulness to be more productive. Forget, and the side effect is happier and better life. Who wouldn't want that, right? Exactly, exactly. So you decided to leave Wall Street and study neuroscience. Was that a difficult decision? And how's the transition for you to go from making a lucrative salary in Wall Street to going back to the classroom as a student? Well, that's a great question. You know, for me, it was a very easy decision. Well, also, I was lucky. You know, I I, I was saving up uh, before, and the salary helps. So I consider myself lucky about that. Um, But the truth is, you know, it was easy because as I stayed on Wall Street until 2014, so I stayed for 13 years, I was quite successful. But deep in my heart, I knew that my calling was something else. I needed to teach the simple tricks that one once helped me to the others. So that's why I went back to college to be a therapist and also to learn what was happening in the body. Remember I mentioned I had a sneaking suspicion that my immune system was doing something. I needed to learn if it was true. So I became, I actually became hired. I I was also enrolled in neuroscience at NYU. Um, I became a researcher there at a brain lab at Langone. It was difficult. It was difficult to forego the salary just because money buys you freedom and being a poor student is not the funnest thing, but it was (laughs) when it's your calling. And within your study of neuroscience, was your focus on neuroimmunology and explain for the layperson what that is? So I started off with the brain science and gradually, actually, I had to tell you a funny story. I met Dr. Deepak Chopra, who is a famous guru of our times uh, at a restaurant, him and his wife. And he said, you're studying, you're researching the brain, but I can challenge you that there is more to mindfulness than the brain. And that's what got me to research. What is it that he was referring to? And it's the, the answer is a subject neuroimmunology. What simply means is the brain is actually completely connected throughout the body in terms of, so the brain actually tells us when to get stressed, when not to get stressed. And when we're stressed, our immune system actually creates a response just because 
stress in our foreparents in our caveman or woman times was related to a predator attack often. And if a predator attacks and claws you, obviously there will be open wounds and germs would be seeping in. That's why stress response is related to killing those germs. Now we don't have predator attack. We, we are safer. But, and stress response happens because we're overworking sometimes. Guess what? Our stress response still hasn't changed. So the immune system still gets ignited. We have inflammation in our body and chronic stress response trying to kill imaginary germs, which haven't entered because we don't have the predators. So neuroimmunology in a nutshell is the study of how the immune system is connected to the neuro neuroscience it's because neuroscience is related to stress response, but it's also related to the downstream of neuroendocrine glands as we, as we talk about the, the stress hormones, the steroids that are released in stress, they're all related to our brain's function. So that relation between the brain function and the immune system is what neuroimmunology is. It's very fascinating. What are some of the more common or commonly known neuroimmunology disorders? And are we getting any closer to finding lasting treatments? Oh, great question. So if you go to Google Scholar, you're going to find if you search um, stress, IBD or IBS, so irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease. Basically, when we have stomach problems, chronic stomach problems, uh, actually very much, or some, some argue solely related to stress. Um, and a lot of studies you would see is IBD, IBS, and if you search with the keyword of mindfulness, those are being studied and Studies show that you can actually improve the symptoms of these diseases if you practice mindfulness, simply because it's our stress response is improved. What were the most surprising or most illuminating things that you learned about neuroscience that you hadn't known before? Wow, that's so amazing. Well, the thing is, you know, I didn't know that the brain was so powerful, to, powerfully connected to the body's rest of the body's response and the stress response. And that's something I learned. And while we all get diseases and diseases don't always happen because of stress, but what I learned is how we manage our stress throughout the day, just actively managing when stress arises, is very important skill. And it actually does downregulate some of the things that could happen, harmful things could happen due to our stress hormone. The stress hormone is a very potent hormone. It's a steroid essentially, bombarding our body when we're stressed to make sure those imaginary germs that may have come in due to predator attack are killed. We don't want those constantly in our bodies, but guess what? If you're working on a deadline for 14 days, those hormones are constantly in our system. Just knowing that alertness. And, and also the other thing is stress changes our genetics. That's the subject of epigenetics. I did a recent textbook chapter on epigenetics of mindfulness and stress. And that is, um, that has a, 
you know, heritable effect on our genes. We could pass on our stress-related harmful changes in our genes to our children. But also the good news is you can reverse those changes and make better genetic changes from mindfulness practice. We've been talking to Ayman Mukherjee-Hausham. He'll be right back after a short break. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Ayman Mukherjee Hausham. Ayman went for, from a successful career in Wall Street to the world of science, where today she's a clinical social worker, neuroimmunology researcher, mindfulness practitioner, and computer scientist, dedicated to helping others avoid burnout. Ayman, I meant to ask you before the break, as we were discussing meditation, is meditation only for people who are coping with stress or some sort of mental health challenge or crisis? It's for everyone. I come from a country, of course, that uh, has meditated for thousands of years. And uh, while I didn't actually learn meditation when I was in India, I learned it here from a very urgent need. It is actually for everyone. But in reality, I have seen a lot of people are more inclined to practicing meditation while the others are rather skeptical, including myself. Like I said, my very first meditation practice was painful. And I just, you know, I, I'm type A, so I decided to stick with it and just give it a shot, like until it works. That's not how you should practice meditation, but not everyone wants to meditate. And we don't want to force calmness on someone. Uh, but there are other ways that you can be mindful. Before the break, you're discussing your studies. You finished those, and then you created the program Jivika to help physicians and frontline health workers reduce or avoid burnout. What was the spark or inspiration for that idea, and what was your motivation to make it happen? It's a great question. So when I was working at a, a brain lab in NYU Langone Medical School, one of my colleagues, who's a doctor, invited me to a New York City hospital to teach mindfulness to a group of doctors. At that point, I didn't know how severe burnout was for frontline caregivers. They're twice as likely to commit suicide um, as in other professions. Not just doctors, we're talking about nurses, 
and any caregiver profession. So I walked in, bright-eyed optimist, thinking, okay, I'm going to cure everyone of <laughs> burnout by teaching them how to meditate. Well, guess what? I checked back in a month later, nothing changed. They were still burned out. I asked around, about 100 doctors were interviewed. I interviewed them throughout the U.S. to learn two things. One is, actually, just to paraphrase one of my clients, who's a resident at a New York hospital, said, teach me, Ayman, how to be mindful, because I've seen the signs. It's straightforward, practical. It works. Second thing, don't ask me to meditate. I asked around why. That was a common sentiment. The very obvious reason was, even for five minutes, they don't have the time to meditate. That's why they're burned out. And a lot of them, the second thing I learned was a lot of them are averse to meditation because of the spiritual roots of meditation. They were left-brained, practical science people. And that's, that's why I actually broke down mindfulness into micro habits that are no meditation, 30-second habits, quick to do. And why do you think the ones who didn't want to meditate were reluctant? Well, because, you know, I mean, just putting myself in their shoes, because I was one of, I, I'm still a skeptic, but I've, that's probably why I wanted to see the science behind it. And I did, I became a researcher. Meditation could be boring if you're not intrinsically motivated to meditate. You need to know that it's doing something good for you. But if you already think that, oh, is it a cult thing? You know, is it religious? I don't, I don't want to do it. Just there is an ickiness to the, some people called it woo-woo. So there, there is that woo-woo-ness. And obviously, you know, if you don't have time, you're exhausted throughout your day. You're working 20 hours a day some days. If I ask you to take five minutes and sit for 20, uh, five minutes, that's going to add to that 20 hours and five minutes of your workday. Do you really want to do it? You would rather do something else like sleeping. So that, that's one of the big, actually, that's the biggest reason. I find it fascinating that your first two uh, subject pools, I'll call them, Wall Street and the medical profession, you know, two of your most uh, Uber A personalities uh, that are out there and you're having success and very good success. Um, you know, post, as we come through the other side of, of the COVID pandemic here, are you seeing an increase okay. in the need, well, obviously the need, but the use, the, the interest in the, in the frontline workers? Oh, yes. Um, so besides being a huge social problem, uh, this burnout, which actually Dr. Murthy, our, the U.S. Surgeon General, recently declared it as a state of emergency, national emergency. Um, besides being a social problem, it's actually a rather big economic problem to the cost of burnout for one physician, for example, is upwards of $4 billion per year. And the cost of one nurse's burnout is over $10 billion, nearly 14, I think. Um, so, you know, we and half of the workforce uh, work, uh, on the front line is leaving. Now, the burnout actually on the front line has existed. 
I did literature review going back hundreds of years, as, as long as there has been publications. People have been burned out. When you care for others, we forget to care for ourselves. And that's exactly what's happening with these folks. They're fatigued. Plus, we have a system that's, um, you know, not fully the infrastructure. We haven't thought through the whole process. So it's breaking down. Um, so just the systemic nature of this problem is getting intensified. But the problem was already there. Sadly, the silver lining of this issue due to the pandemic, it's made it more intense and more prominent, prominent enough for us to have a call for action. You know, 100% agree with you. And that's something I've been saying over the last two years is the one positive thing about COVID is that it's actually put a big spotlight on mental health, on mindfulness, and in a positive way. Yeah, It's no longer taboo. It's no longer just something to talk about the kitchen table or to completely avoid yes. um, to the point where you and I are having this conversation. You know, the federal government just rolled out the 988 number a few days ago. And so, you know, it is a, a national state of emergency, but at least now we're getting the right eyes on it. Now we just have to get to have the funding and the programs put in place. Yes, absolutely. We don't have to suffer in silence. Mental exactly. Exactly. You know, a moment ago, you talked about meditating, people thinking it being tied to a, you know, a cult or religious beliefs. How do you dispel that viewpoint? Well, you know, meditation could be, you know, sometimes it could seem airy fairy, right? <laughs> Just, uh, you know, like uh, the visualizations are described in a way that could be like very hard, not tangible. Um, we have to make the language a little more practical. You know, not just the language, the practices. Um, now, mindfulness, we, and we also have to separate mindfulness from meditation. Because not everyone wants to meditate. And we have to accept that for whatever reason it is. But mindfulness is actually a trait. We can develop through practice a habit. It's a habit of being present and noticing when stress is arising and doing something about it. So, you know, it doesn't have to be meditation. And that's the key. We, we don't need a world. I mean, it would be lovely if everyone is yogi, but the truth of the matter is not everyone wants to be forced to be a meditator or a yogi, but there is a big option. It's just, you know, a learned trait that we can practice. And that that's the practical aspect of mindfulness is extremely important to study in science and also to spread the word, word about, you know, make it more practical, make it more pragmatic, show that it could be done as a habit. Just like dental hygiene, mental hygiene, right? Well, it's that, or just like going to the gym, you need to find the time, you need to make yes. it part of your daily routine. Absolutely. And, and like you said, it's just how do we persuade people to stick with it and to find the time? I, maybe, I think maybe one thing to consider, you know, so I live outside New York City. The one positive thing for me is that I've gotten three and a half hours a day back of my life because I'm not commuting into lower Manhattan now. How lovely is that? So that is a game changer. Yes. Physically, mentally, family, all of that. And, you know, I guess I need to find that five minutes now that I've got an extra three and a half hours a day Absolutely. Uh, to be more mindful. Yes. And the longer you do is better. I, and 
you know, I've seen the resident who told me, remember I mentioned I'm in, teach me how to be mindful. Don't ask me to meditate. He is at UMass now, hospital, doing his fellowship. And guess what? He not only meditates, not only practices micro habits, but actually meditates with his family. How cool is that? So once you practice a lot of these, you know, you realize that it's the stigma goes away. The, the barrier goes away. You're already working with 29 hospitals in the United States and Canada. What kind of results have you seen so far in terms of better mental health and staff stability? Well, that's a great question. I love to talk about it because, you know, you can do something, but not see any results. But we're actually seeing results by teaching mindfulness through micro habits. One of our clients um, who is also so the CEO of one of the Cleveland Clinic hospitals is our client. His whole staff is lovely group of people. And he loves our program so much, he's become our advisor now. Now, he reported that his staff, he saw that there, his attrition went down from 40% to 0% for the first time in 38 weeks after using Jivika. He gives us all, all the credit, but I'd like to share the credit with his culture because it's very important for the leadership to inculcate that culture of resilience, culture of kindness, and he does that too. But oh, yeah, great. we're seeing huge, huge change. And that's great to hear coming from the top of the house on down. That's how you lead. Yes. And we also see that our actual users who are the doctors, nurses, physical therapists reporting back saying, so I do a survey, a burnout survey every time after my uh, interactions with them. So periodically every month. And And now they say these nurses, one of the nurses said, if you asked me to take this survey (laughs) Now versus when you did back when you first met us, results would be completely different. They're so much happier. And that just makes my day. How soon do you expect other hospitals to pick up the program? And what's your ultimate goal in terms of the number of hospitals or medical professionals that you hope to serve? So our goal is, so right now we see a lot of the teaching hospitals using our product because teaching hospitals are larger and the patient to um, doctor ratios are very different. So the, you know, from the management perspective, they're strained, more strained than the private hospitals, but we see all of them coming to us. How soon? So right now, the way our program works, it's it's offered in two parallel tracks. So one tract is a series of one-hour workshops. Each workshop is themed to the industry, in this case, frontline, that we're working with, teaching the what, why, and how of the microhabits, because I don't want them to blindly, and they won't. They're the types who won't blindly follow what I ask them to do. But in between the two workshops, I sent them texts every single day with a new microhabit. And then we stack the microhabits to build on each of them. There are hundreds of microhabits like this. We teach them. So basically, we establish the routine. So there is a workshop series, then a microhabit trainer, which is text-based. Now, we're getting a lot more demand of 
this product combination than we can handle. So what we are doing now, we've learned a lot from the text messaging. We are scaling Jivika to become an app. And that way, you know, we, we actually got into the summer accelerator and we got our first grant from NYU. Um, so we are building the product and how soon, as soon as this year, we're actually planning a few double blind studies. We're publishing one of our case studies on New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst Journal. Um, so as soon as this year, we're hoping that all hospitals, our goal is 10% of say 95% realistically of all U.S. hospitals to adopt our uh, method. And uh, we have been in talks with the head, the chief of wellness at the ACGME, which which is the residency programs uh, organizing uh, regulatory board um, to spread the word. And we're, we're working with them to kind of make sure that this is robust enough. I met the U.S. Surgeon General too very recently, and he wrote back, which is very lovely of him. So it's it's the the word is spreading, and my goal is to reduce burnout, to make a small dent in the burnout numbers. Of course, there are other systemic issues that cause this burnout that need to change, but with these kind of interventions, we can make a difference. And why this works is also there's a huge stigma. Uh, in seeking mental health help, health help uh, in on the front lines to the point that they're worried about their licensure uh, if they're reported by their therapist, which apparently could happen in some policy. There aren't enough policies to protect them from it. But this practice is stigma-free. You're simply getting a fun micro habit every day. You practice it. You don't feel like you're seeking help. It's more about increasing your productivity, making yourself happier. And who doesn't want that? We've mentioned that all the talk about frontline medical professions, burnout is focused on the pandemic and its impact. Will the burnout crisis go away when the pandemic finally subsides? Well, burnout is a side effect of our modern life. And... um, so the, so the pandemic has actually brought something to the forefront that already existed. Burnout did exist before the pandemic, but it's not going to go away right away after the pandemic. Change needs to happen. The good news is I am seeing a call. So, so our, we don't even market our product for non-healthcare organizations, but of course, we wouldn't turn anyone away. We're getting a lot of clients from non-healthcare organizations that are the organizations who purchase licenses to our product, basically using this product for free for all their employees. And that is a sign of change to me. It, ha- it needs to happen in a broader scale. So it Burnout won't be erased. What needs to happen is we need to learn stress management techniques that we can apply throughout the day. You teach your program in a series of workshops. How can people find you or reach out to you if interested in having these workshops brought in? Oh, great question. And I'd love to answer that. So they can reach out and we can share my email address. Um, Best ways, email me. And I'll spell it for you. First, it's Iman Mukherjee Househam at gmail.com. 
It's long, I know. So I'm going to spell it for you. It's A as in Apple, Y, M as in Mary, A, N, M U K E R J I, H O U S E H A M at gmail.com. Or you can visit my website, Iman Mukherjee.com. Perfect. And also for our listeners, you can go to our website and you can find it there as well. So, Iman, we're going to try something now that we've never done before on Next Steps Forward. Yes. We're going to take a few minutes here as we approach into this week's edition, and I'm just going to lead us through a meditation practice. I would but love that. With that, I'm going to take it away. Thank you. This is my best part, happiest and most, it makes me happy. So for this quick relaxation exercise, what we'll do is we're going to sit in a certain way that helps us stay awake and alert, yet kind of, you know, comfortable enough that we can relax without falling asleep. So for that, let's move our bottoms towards the back of the chair. So if you have a backrest, relax and lean on the backrest so your back is erect if it doesn't hurt your back. If that hurts your back, do whatever it takes to not be in pain as much as you can. And we're going to do two more things. We're going to separate our upper and lower jaws slightly. And we'll keep it that way throughout this practice. The second thing is you can touch the tips of your shoulders and roll them towards your back away from the ears. It should feel really nice. It's a stretch. And keep it that way without straining anything and place your palms either on your laps, on the table, whatever is comfortable for you. And if it's available to you, close your eyes. I'm going to keep my eyes open just because I want to just stay on track on the time. And I'll also keep my eyes closed from time to time. So start this practice with your shoulders away from the ears, jaws slightly apart. Take two deep breaths. We're going to take, I'm going to guide you through it. You're going to take three, two deep breaths through the nostrils. You're going to follow the air as it travels down the body and then up the body as you exhale. So, and we're gonna hold the breath in between. I'll count the hold. Why? Because that actually sometimes helps with bringing down the heart rate, which is always a calming thing for the nervous system. So inhale through the nostrils. Notice the chest rising. Now, notice the belly rising, and a quick way of doing that is noticing the belly button move away from your back. Hold the breath here for five, four, three, two, and one. Now, slowly exhale through the nostrils. Notice the belly button moving towards your back, your chest weaving in and warm air passing out through the tips of your nostrils. One more like this, inhale. Notice the cool air through the nostrils, expanding your rib cage in all four directions. So as you inhale, notice the rib cage going forward, expanding sideways and even backwards. Now fill up your belly, fill up your belly even more 
And notice the belly button moving away from your back. Hold this again. Shoulders away from the ears, jaws apart. Five, four, three, two, and one. Slowly exhale through the nostrils. Belly button moves towards the back. Okay. Now, I'm going to guide you through a physical relaxation exercise. And as we do that, from time to time, you're going to notice if a thought arises. I'll remind you of that. But every time a thought arises, don't scold yourself for being a bad meditator. Just notice the thought because it's normal for the mind to think. Notice the thought. Imagine the thought enclosed in a fluffy white cloud. And notice in your mind's blue sky, the cloud moving away, getting smaller, away, smaller, until it becomes a dot and then disappears. You can't see it anymore. We'll do this every time there is a thought. Okay, so I'm going to guide you through to focus your attention on each body part. Start with focusing and zooming in on the physical sensation of your two feet. Notice the tips of your ten toes and the physical sensation of the soles touching the ground. Also notice where the soles lift off of the ground. Mentally command the muscles around your feet to let go as much as they can. Notice how the feet simply touch the ground like feather. You don't have to do anything for it. If a thought comes, notice the thought and notice the thought moving away like a cloud until you can't see it. Now, zoom in on the physical sensations of your calves and shins. Mentally command the muscles around the shins and the calves to let go as much as you can. And notice the lower legs simply hanging from your kneecaps. I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt. Hopefully the listeners aren't falling asleep. I, I was uh, very <laughs> meditating calm there. We're running out of time. Again, it's imanmukherjeehouseham at gmail.com. And your website one more time, please. Iman-Mukherjee.com. Perfect. Iman, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Chris. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with our leader, from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life. 